Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis chapter 1. This morning, we are beginning a series in the book of Genesis. The goal for this stretch is to get through the story of Jacob that is right up through somewhere in Genesis 35 before the story of Joseph begins, hopefully sometime next spring. I'm going to read all of Genesis chapter 1. As I read this, I think you will notice, I want to assure you that I have noticed there are so many wondrous things we could talk about. In many ways, Genesis 1 and 2 together deserve an entire sermon series. I'm aware of that. I hope to try to find some way to incorporate something like that in the future. But this morning, we are taking this chapter as a whole. So that means there's many details we're not going to talk about, and it means what we're wanting to hear is the message, the proclamation, what this chapter as a whole announces. And so as I read it, that's what we want to be listening to. What does this chapter as a single text of Scripture proclaim to us as Christ's church? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, And trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. 
And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we desire with the posture of prayer to submit ourselves to your word. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would keep us from trying to control or manipulate your word for our own purposes. And instead, that you would enable us in a way that only you can do, that our, that our own efforts are helpless to accomplish. Enable us truly to receive, to hear, to be changed by your word and thereby turn us toward yourself. We confess that our hearts are restless until they rest in you, 
And so we ask you to use your word by your spirit's presence and power to turn us toward you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, here at the beginning of a series in the book of Genesis, having read Genesis chapter 1, we are before, we have before us one of the grandest, most beautiful passages of all of Scripture. The, pa- the passage that begins the Scriptures, begins God's Word, begins the revealing to Israel of God as their covenant God. And it begins with the announcement of our God as the creator of all things. Now I know that as we begin a chapter like this, I've already alluded in our scripture reading, that we come to it with many questions. We come to it with many ways. Perhaps we have used the chapter in the past in debates, discussions with others. And I want to challenge, encourage, exhort us to try to set all of that aside. And to receive what God's word announces to us in a way that is truly for us. Speaking to us, challenging us, seeking to cultivate and encourage our faith as his gathered church. We must remember, every time we come to God's word on the Lord's day, we are not here simply for information, for true facts in our minds, as much as that is part of what we are doing but that we are here that we might hear the living voice of our Savior speaking to us through his word. That is what we anticipate eagerly as we come to Genesis chapter 1. Well, we can summarize the message of this text very simply. Genesis chapter 1 proclaims that Israel's covenant God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the creator God of the whole world. Israel's God, the one who would send his Son, is the one who called all things into existence. In proclaiming God as the creator, it does three things. First, first it proclaims the glory of the creator. It says something about God. Second, it proclaims the goodness of creation. It says something about the world. And third, and this is the part that I hope will challenge us the most, it says something about redemption. Now, if you have your three points, we have the glory of the creator, the goodness of creation. Third, I'm calling this the scope of redemption, the broadness, the width, the bigness of what God does when he saves his people. More on that in a moment. First, Genesis 1, proclaiming God as creator, proclaims the glory of the creator. Verse 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the rest of the chapter is an unfolding of how God did that. What God did, that he he spoke and it came into existence. That first he ordered the creation on days one through three, dividing and separating. And then he filled the creation in days four through six. But first, we need to hear verse one as saying something Deeper, bigger than our minds can fully comprehend. Now, that's already a challenging thing to do, right? We want to hear it saying something bigger than we can comprehend. Well, this is what scriptures are always doing when they proclaim our creator to us. The one who is bigger than us, greater than us. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, with these words, there are all sorts of problems with how our imaginations uh, shape and form how we hear them. When we hear in the beginning, we think of time moving along, and then you begin something. Something begins. And so we naturally, as humans who live within created time, we naturally think of this as being, there was a time when God was not doing anything, and then in the beginning of creation, he starts doing something. But what is announced here is the beginning of time itself. The time before which, as we understand it as creatures, the time before which there was no time. And what we need to be challenged by is that that very idea is something we cannot wrap our minds around. When we say God is eternal, we don't simply mean he's been around for a long time. Now, there are places where the scriptures speak in those terms, saying that, for example, through the entire timeline of human history, God has been present. But when we say God is eternal, we mean he is outside of time. He is the Lord of time, the creator of time, the the sovereign source of time. And so it's not that there was a time when God was doing nothing and then he chooses to create. Rather, he calls time itself into existence. Now, why do we need to hear it in this way? Because Genesis 1 verse 1 is saying something absolute. It is saying something total. It is saying that God is the very source of all of created reality, even time and space itself. It's not saying simply that God sits at the beginning of the timeline as the one who got it started. It's saying that God is the ground of being, the very reason the entire timeline exists. Even if you could somehow come up with a scientific explanation of an infinite sequence of causes that just goes back forever, none of that would change the fact that God is the reason that sequence of events exists. That he is the very ground of being. And we must hear God's word in this way because God's word is saying this in a way that challenges how the world thinks. At the time, there were all manner of nations, just as there are today, who had their own idea of gods in the world. And they would debate which God is real. Is your God real? Is this God real? Maybe they're all real. There's different versions of this, right? We think if someone says maybe they're all real, well, that's polytheism. And what Israel proclaims is what we call monotheism. There's only one God. But be very careful how you hear that. Genesis is not saying we're debating in the world which God has being. Which God exists in the world? That's not what we're saying. Israel would have said, Baal quite likely was real. Baal might have been a demon. We don't know. That's not what monotheism means. What monotheism means is that God is being. He is the source of all of created reality. And that Israel is saying, we should not worship something in the creation. Rather, we worship the one who is the very source of creation. And that idea of God as the source, the beginning, the the ground, the basis for all of it must constantly challenge us because we are always trying to drag God into the world as just being a really strong version of one of us. But he is not. He is being. And we know being exists because we can't be unless being exists. Being must exist for us to be. Now, I know I have the grammar wrong there, but you get what I'm trying to connect. And Israel is saying, we worship the self-existent one, the one who is being, who called the universe into existence, the glory of the creator. There's another way the glory of the creator is proclaimed here, and that is specifically attacking the world's tendency to worship things in the creation. 
whether to be the worship the creation itself, to worship powers in the creation, to worship humanity. A couple examples. Verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Now, what do you notice about this, interestingly? The greater light, the lesser light. Well, there are words in Hebrew for this. It's called the sun and the moon. And Genesis 1 specifically avoids referring to the sun and moon by their names and refers to them simply as lights. Well, what it is announcing is to those who would worship the sun, who would worship the moon, as many did at the time, many do to this day in the worship of creation and what we today call modern science. In those who would worship these things, Genesis 1 says, oh, no, 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 no. They're just lights. And they are lights that the creator created. And in that, there is an attack upon those who would worship those things. With Genesis 1 saying, they are just lights. To those who would say, it is the stars and the movement of the stars and the shape of the stars that control the fate of all things and how things happen. And so we worship these heavenly lights. We simply has as almost an afterthought at the end of verse 17, excuse me, end of verse 16, and the stars. What is being said here is that Israel is being directed in the way of wisdom to worship the creator, the one who is being, the self-existent one who called into existence all that humans are tempted to worship. One more example. The language in verse 11. So God has divided the land from the sea, and then we read this in verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. God says, let the earth sprout vegetation. Now, what the pagan nations around Israel wanted to say was that, no, 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 whether or not the crops grow this year depends on what Baal does. It depends on the gods and what they will do, whether they will send the rain or not, and whether they will enable us to have this prosperity. And so the worship of all of these pagan gods was driven by trying to control and manipulate what happened in the world. And Genesis 1 says, actually, plants just grow. Like, they grow. Sun shines, it rains, and the earth brings forth the vegetation. What Genesis 1 is announcing is that God has created the creation with a kind of integrity that he maintains at every moment, but is an integrity that is internal to it, so that the earth sprouts vegetation, so that the animals are fruitful and multiply, as God will later say, that they, they swarm in the ocean, they swarm in the air, and these are all things that God has embedded within the creation. How Genesis 1 speaks is the basis for science working for technology, for engineering working. I want to warn you against something our culture does so aggressively in the way we are constantly catechized in how our culture speaks. Our culture likes to speak that on the one hand, you have religions. So whether it's the Christian faith, whether it's being Jewish, whether it's paganism, put it all in the same category. And on the other hand, you have thinking of the world scientifically. But you see, it is the announcement of the creator 
what Genesis 1 says that frees us from the pagan worship of creation. It is the announcement of the creator in Genesis 1 that frees us to say creation has a kind of internal order to it, that God has given to it, that we then study and use in the way of science and exploration. It is what is announced in Genesis 1 that frees us from paganism, frees us from all false religion that would lead us then to worship the creation. Genesis 1 makes science possible. Because God is the creator who has given that order to creation. That is the glory of the creator. One final way, Genesis 1 proclaims the glory of the creator. As we move through those sequence of days, now you know the main point is that God created everything. All right. But there is a level of detail moving through the dividing Light from dark, the waters above, waters below, land from sea. And then the filling, the lights, the birds and the fish and all the animals. There's a way of working through those details that forces you, in a sense, to be reminded of just what all it is that God made. And just how diverse and and beautiful all of it is. And how it is precisely all of those things that then, because of all that we've said thus far, proclaim the glory of the Creator. That every detail, zoomed in detail of beauty in this creation, whatever day of creation it was that spoke of something that you are fascinated by, that you delight in, a hobby, an interest, a thing you like to do or to explore or learn about, every one of those things proclaims the glory and beauty of who God is. And Genesis 1 is challenging you to think in that way. That every element of beauty, of order, of wisdom, of complexity, of surprising glory in this creation, all points to God and proclaims God as the creator. And you were made to enjoy going there with that. Meaning you were made to enjoy experiencing something beautiful, experiencing something good, something that delights you, and completing the enjoyment of it by praising God for it. And Genesis 1 beautifully reminds you of that created intention. You say, why am I here? What is my purpose? One of the primary things is this, to enjoy the glory of God as it is revealed in his creation and to praise him for it. It is that simple. Well, secondly, that leads us to another thing Genesis 1 is saying. Because as, as we were just saying that all of these details in creation proclaim God's glory, you realize, I think you feel already there, we're not just saying something about God. What else are we saying something about? If we say that the details and the beauty and the order and the wisdom of this created universe proclaims God's glory, we're saying something about the creation. And that is the second thing we must see this morning from Genesis 1, that it proclaims to us the goodness of creation. There is a refrain running throughout the chapter. At the summing up point of each day of creation, we read, and God saw that it was good. Verse 10. Verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Verse 18, and God saw that it was good. A refrain running through the chapter, all leading up to the summary statement in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Good. 
I love the language. God saw, and it was good. I wonder if we think when we hear God says the creation is good, we hear it as a law, a rule he's imposing on the world. Like he makes it, and it's just there. And he says, okay, now you humans, I want you to think of this thing as good. All right, so he's giving us a rule. This thing I've made, this is good. We need to hear this a little bit differently. God creates it, and he observes its goodness. He sees its goodness. Now, we cannot separate this from God because he is the one who created it. It is his wisdom, his love that's reflected in the creation. But now this creation that he has made, reflecting who he is, his character, then in in a way that, again, reflects its own internal integrity, what it is as creation is something God can look at and then see, he can say, proclaiming having seen it, it is good. There are countless pagan philosophies that have wanted to say the creation is not good and that what is good is a spiritual realm, totally separate from it. There are countless unbelieving philosophies that would say creation is not good, it's just random chaos and chance and matter in motion. There are countless false religions, foolish philosophies, that would say, this stuff isn't good, it's messy, it's dirty, it's, what, what, what is good is escaping from it. And there are countless Christians who would say, this stuff isn't good. What is good is going to heaven one day when I die. Genesis 1 must challenge us, must confront us. Don't assume you know what it's saying. Genesis 1 must challenge us to, in a fresh way, appreciate the goodness of created reality, the goodness of your body, the goodness of your humanness, the goodness of the things of this life that we enjoy. And when God proclaims it good, it is all of those things being proclaimed good. Now, what's the objection you know, we're, all, we're all wanting to raise right now? Well, it's Genesis 3. Well, that's right, we're going to get there. Sin invades, there is a curse. Thorns and thistles, the world does not function as it was created to function. But that goodness is not eliminated, it is distorted, it is twisted. And we must hear the reality of this goodness of creation. Specifically, the goodness of humanity. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Humanity is placed as as the, the, the crowning achievement of God's creation, the one made in God's image. Now, we're going to talk about this more next week in Genesis 2, which focuses on the creation of humanity. But we need to hear all of this together. As part of that refrain of God saying the creation is very good, he announces in particular that human beings are made in his image. Humanity is good. See, well, yeah, but Genesis 3 is coming. That's right. Sin distorts this, the curse. But where the story begins is not there. Where the story begins is with the creation that God announces as good, with humanity in particular proclaimed as good. Indeed, not just our humanness, but our human task is given to us in Genesis 1. Verse 28, 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. What is the task God gives human beings? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. More on this next week, but that task is good. Everything involved in accomplishing that task is good. It's announced as good and ought to be received as good in Genesis chapter 1. And then what is the task as human beings are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion? Now there's many who worry about the tone of that word. We can solve this very simply. We were just told human beings were made in God's image. And so what dominion here means, it means being like God. Well, what is God doing in this in Genesis 1? He is being creative. He blesses his creation. He calls forth vegetation that will nourish the creatures he has made. What God does is he loves his creation. He cares for it, and he brings out of it beauty and glory. And he calls human beings to do the same. This is who you are as a human. One called to this task of all that... Subdue and dominion includes all of that bringing out the creative potential God has placed in his creation. God has made you for the whole world of exploration, of science, of engineering, of technology, of construction, of all of the things we do with God's creation to bring out of it creatively. He has called you to the whole world of art, of creativity, of craftsmanship. And he's called you to it, not simply because it accomplishes something, because it does something, because that it itself is good, because the creation is good, and the very enjoyment and delight in those things glorifies God as the creator. This is one of the most fundamental things that the Christian faith proclaims, is that the good creator has announced from the beginning That this task God has given you as human beings is truly good. Now, thus far as I say that, I don't think it's very controversial. But we don't always feel this way. We don't always think this way. Too many churches, too many Christians, too many ministers, too many Christians in their interaction with each other act like there is a category of spiritual callings and things to do, and then there is everything else. Too many ministers like to give the impression, you all need to try to be as spiritual as I am, right? As though spiritual is this overlay on top of God's creation, other than God's creation. But Genesis 1 is proclaiming that, no, 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 all of the things we do in God's good creation have spiritual significance. All of them are the things that God as creator has called us to do. This announces to you that your ordinary tasks, your ordinary callings, your ordinary circumstances God has placed you in throughout the week are truly good before his face and for his glory. Now, I'm I'm well aware, I'm not naive to this, that many of you have circumstances that you are in throughout the week that you can't stand. Much of this is because there is also a curse because the world is broken, and one of the main things the curse affects, Genesis 3, is our work. And all of that is true. 
whether it be because of the sinfulness of people we are working with, because of our own sinfulness, our own laziness, whether it be because the world doesn't work as God made it to work. But none of that takes away from the created goodness of the thing that has been distorted. And we need to also be able to perceive in the ordinary things God has called us to do that created goodness. Some of us, well, say it this way, all of us some of the time, and some of us just about all the time, have trouble with this. It is a burden. It's a real kind of suffering, actually, to have something that you know it's what you were called to be doing through the week, and you just don't see the meaning and purpose and significance of it. All sorts of reasons why. Whether it because others in the world say, ah, oh, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's despised. It's not celebrated like it should be. It's not as productive as you wish it were. Whether it because of a kind of pietism where you feel that other Christians suggest it is insignificant and meaningless. It's often the fault of other Christians more than anything else. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you from God's word that at the core at the center of what he has called you to as a human being, as insignificant as it feels, as fearful as the way it's going to be forgotten in the future seems to be, as much as the world looks down upon it, God proclaims to you from his word that he has called you as a human being to live in his creation, whatever way is big or small, and that all that he has given you to do is for his glory, is for his delight, and it has a goodness to it in the thing itself. The thing that, you know, no other human's going to remember it. No other human cared. It is good. It has dignity. It has meaning. It has purpose for God's glory. The goodness of God's creation. Finally, third, and all of this is proclaimed, the scope of redemption. So first, the glory of the creator. Second, the goodness of creation. Third, the scope of redemption. All right, let's, let's take stock of where we are right now in the text. What have we been hearing it say? God is glorified. The eternal ground of being, the source of all of reality. The creation is affirmed. It is good. We've alluded to multiple times now what's coming in the story though. Sin, curse, our rebellion, our brokenness resulting from that. There are many who would say, many Christians, many traditions in the Christian faith who have been tempted by this error, and we are tempted by it as well, to say, all of this stuff is bad because of that sin, curse, all of that. And our goal is to escape from it, to reject it. There are many who would speak of this and talk about it in such a way that would really give people a sense of, well, then what is the point to anything I'm doing along the timeline? If the whole goal is just for this to be deleted, erased, and then I'm in heaven one day, why does any of this matter? And there are many who have heard Christians saying that. There are many who have heard Christians saying that none of this really matters. It's not that significant. What matters is where you go when you die. So often the gospel is presented in this way. So often the meaning of the gospel and the meaning of Jesus is presented simply as this. You're going to die. Where are you going to go? You better make sure you're going to a good place. And this is all that is said of the gospel. Why do so many hear Christians saying this? Because so many Christians are saying this. There are many who have walked away from the Christian faith 
because they hear the gospel proclaimed in these terms as a kind of rejection of this life, a rejection of these bodies, a rejection of the work and the tasks, calling, callings God has given. Some are even arguing one of the reasons we see a resurgent paganism is because at least paganism manages to affirm the creation a little bit. Paganism talks about death as something that is bad. Paganism wants to view the world as enchanted, as there's some sort of meaning to it. We need to correct all of this. Genesis 1 as the announcement of the scope, the broadness of what God is doing. We can say it this way. The Bible does not start with Genesis chapter 3. And I'm not talking about math here. I know 1 and 2 come before 3. The Bible does not start with sin and curse that you need to be rescued from. The Bible does not start with you're going to die one day, where are you going to go? What does the Bible start with? God's good creation. The Bible starts with all of this is good. Our bodies are good. Our human calling is good. The universe is good. Created reality is good. And the Bible announces the good news that the good creator is acting to rescue his good creation. We read from Colossians 1 verse 15. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of the Christ, we read these words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. We say, wait a minute. Colossians 1 announces that there in Genesis 1 verse 1, it was the eternal son of God. The word, the logos, the wisdom of God was the one who gave creation its shape. That the Son of God, who would be incarnate as our Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who gave all of reality its form. He is the one through whom it was made. He was the one for whom it was made. If we announce the gospel as a way to escape creation, we have contradicted all that Scripture says about who Jesus even is. He is the Son, the Word, the Logos, the Wisdom, the One through whom God spoke the universe into existence, who then comes into the world to rescue His creation, because the creation is good. Colossians 1 continues. Verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. We hear there, Genesis 1, in the beginning. Before does not mean first moment on the timeline, before means the one upholding all of it at all times, the, the, the ground of being, the one who is being, the one who gives all of it its integrity and structure and existence. In him all things hold together. Verse 19, now speaking of the incarnation, Jesus being born in the world, for in him that is in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And now the scope of redemption, what then is God doing in Christ? And through him, to reconcile all things. Brothers and sisters, we desperately, urgently need Genesis 1 to shape how we think and feel and speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Colossians 1 says that what God is doing in Christ is reconciling to himself all things. And then the verse says, whether on earth or in heaven. Because God knew we are always tempted to reject his creation and to summarize the gospel as it'll all be reconciled in heaven, all that matters is heaven, God is rejecting all of this. To reconcile to himself all things. And it is 
the elevating, the affirming, the delighting in Genesis 1 that drives us to that. The gospel of Jesus Christ announces that the good creator will not abandon his good creation. That the good creator has not abandoned his creation. And that the whole rest of the story of redemption is then shaped by this. You know, so many Christians today, so many times we do, we think the Old Testament stuff is weird. I love to point this out. We got, we got to acknowledge out loud how we often feel. We're in Leviticus, and there's all this stuff about animals and crops, and like everything is so earthy. What is going on here? When do we get to the spiritual stuff? Where did the Bible start? Genesis 1. The earthiness makes sense. This is the stuff God cares about, that he is ordering, that he is showing to us after the curse, after sin. This is how the world is meant to work, how life ought to be, how the creation was meant to work. The incarnation. Why is the the, the cause, the source of salvation, the way of accomplishing salvation, the word becoming flesh, the eternal son entering the creation with us because God is rescuing his creation. When Jesus dies on the cross, he does not then continue on simply as a spirit, but rather his body is raised. The tomb is empty, and he leaves the tomb as part of that new creation. Why? Because of Genesis 1. God is rescuing his creation. He's rescuing you, your bodies, your humanness, and the resurrection of Christ announces that. This is why then the promise of the gospel is of new creation, a new heavens and a new earth of resurrection bodies that just as Christ's body came from the tomb, our graves will be empty. And so we place the body in the grave, mourning and grieving death as a foreign invader, confident in the promise of resurrection. And all of that means then, not just about the future, but about now, that the way of following this Jesus is the way of the Creator. The way of following this Jesus is the way of life now that is good and flourishing and fruitful and in fellowship with God and delighting in the good that is made known of God in his creation. And brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ must speak of the gospel in this way. That's too abstract. You must receive the gospel in this way. That your humanness, every moment on the timeline, is created good, is being rescued by Christ, is being restored by Christ. And the promise of God is that in the new creation to come, what God will do is finally complete that work. This is not the rejection of any of this. It is the restoration, the recovery, the, the, the good creator rescuing what has been lost. Many of you, in particular ways at this moment, desperately need that good news. There is much that is broken, much that lies under the curse, much that is not as it should be, whether it be in your work, in your relationships, at school, the brokenness and frailty of our bodies, the fact that we live right now in personal timelines that all lead toward death. All of it is real. We're going to talk about the more in Genesis 3. That curse is real. But Genesis 1 stands as the testimony that the good creator will not abandon you to any of that. That none of that curse, none of that brokenness wins. None of it is what is in charge. None of it is what determines the story. And that the good creator has acted in Christ 
to restore you to himself, to restore this created life perfectly in the new creation, to come in a way that then affirms that life in the here and now. The God who called into existence the world in Genesis chapter 1 is the same God who promised to set all things right in the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the book of Revelation. And that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us truly to embrace the goodness of the world you have made. Help us as we do that to grow in our confidence, our certainty, our hope, our joy in your promise to set all things right. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.